but it seems like now there's more things that we have to suspend our disbelief about. Um, and like, it's possible that like, maybe that's not true. Maybe in like the 19, like if you go back to like the beginning of the 20th century, like there's so many people who are illiterate and so many people who like didn't have fundamental understandings of things that Mm -hmm. the disconnect between understanding and actuality was the same. And this people have gotten smarter over time just because of the addition to technology to society. But it seems not like that. It seems like our capacity to understand things probably hasn't changed very much in a hundred years. So it would stand a reason that there are more things now that we don't understand, but still operate within. Well, I think we just have more stuff, right? One side of the equation is yes, we just have more stuff these days. Mm. Um, And we get the benefit of actually using all of it. Uh, So we make use of it. We've adopted basically the use around it. Um, But we we don't fully understand exactly how it works. Uh, Just knowing, of course, that it does work and how to actually operate it. Um, This microphone, for example, is something I intrinsically do not understand what's going on. That's true. Neither do I. Um, But at the same time, I think we just have to be... uh, you know, life is a bit more complex with all this stuff that's there. And so our ability to actually do a deep dive and fully understand what's going on or our ability to sit down and fully research why it works and how it works, I think becomes a little bit more of a uh, scarcity, which is probably what you're feeling right there. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. I guess. I'm tired of having this conversation sober. Let's open our drinks. Yep. All right. We're having a, uh, a New York beer. It's from the Omegon Brewery in Cooperstown, New York. Is, is that the Cooperstown where the Baseball Hall of Fame is? I think it must be. I would imagine so. Um, I mean, if, if you're going to call out Cooperstown, like you, you would call out a town that is recognized. Right? Yeah, I would just imagine that there are many Cooperstowns in the world or in the U.S., like it just uh, like you'd be surprised, right? I mean, just think of well every repeated name out there. Uh, well, it is the Baseball Hall of Fame town, but um, I think there might be other Cooperstowns. Let's, let's see if we can find that out. Cooperstown, yeah, there's a Cooperstown, New Jersey. There's a Cooperstown, North Dakota. There's a Cooperstown, Pennsylvania. Ooh, that is an interesting beer. Hennepin Farmhouse Saison. It's uh definitely. But sweeter than I, I imagine. It's interesting. It's kind of like an amber. Uh-huh. It's not. It's very hoppy, but it's not bitter. No, um, not at all. And huh, kind of refreshing. It's high in alcohol content, seven point seven percent. It's almost like a beer flavored cider. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Not bad. It's yeah. sort of a. 
You could you could imagine being a Belgian, maybe like a hoppy Belgian, almost like a triple. Yeah, I mean, it, it's what I think about when we're when the word saison comes up, right? Mm-hmm. But it's about it's about as summery as you can get with a beer that, that, that's this hoppy. Uh, yes, which is much needed during this week, which was relatively humid and warm mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, but let's get on to our main topic of today and. We want to actually talk a little bit about adoption, uh, first and foremost. And I guess, uh, you know, at least just to put some caveats around it, I know there's a lot of different uh, talk tracks around adoption and a lot of folks who kind of found to be experts around it. Um, I think we, we typically take a different direction around it. Um, uh, you know, Charles and I, we've both been working at Tableau for a while. We've worked in capacity of pre-sales and post-sales and, uh, you know, uh, as we mentioned before, between the two of us, there's roughly about a decade worth of uh, experience working yeah, with a this more. one product yeah. and, and working through basically these uh, adoption issues that have come up across these uh, uh, across different accounts, across different um, use cases and deployments. Mm-hmm. The so I, you know we want to just take a uh, step back and kind of talk a little about our own experience, our own thought process behind it kind of work out some ideas because at the end of the day, um, you know, personally, I never believed that there is a golden rule book for adoption. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think we both think about a lot mm-hmm. and I think it's important because of the philosophy we kind of have behind it. You know, I think we both believe that adoption is sort of, you know, working in, in sales roles, we believe adoption is sort of the, the critical element to what we do mm-hmm. um because we're, we're always thinking about being in sales like how do we extend our reach how do we make it so more people have access to tableau how do we sell more software but really when it comes to our relationships with our customers uh the belief is if we can get the customers to have cultural changes and philosophical changes with the way they think about data, they will naturally adopt more Tableau. They'll, they'll want to use it more. They'll use it more frequently. They'll have more people using it and that will lead to sales. So we're not, we're not going into these customers usually pitching things or trying to get them to buy things. We're just trying to enable them to be successful. And we think, and that's really the definition of adoption in our minds, I think is, um, you know, what is it like? What is the process of someone actually doing something new right. and doing that thing, uh, c- committing to that that new process or thing right. or technology or whatever it is? Yeah. Um, so, I think you know, I have sort of defined kind of a few elements to that that I think help me think about it. I don't know if this if this is like different from how other people think about it or if it's unique to me, but. I kind of, I like to kind of break things out into different components and lists and things. So these are the five different um, elements that I think must be in place for someone to adopt a new technology. Mm. It has to be easy to access. Mm. So by that I mean it has to be easy for them to actually get mm. and start using. And it has to be easy to use. And that's different. Um, easy to access is has to be easy for them to acquire. Mm-hmm. And easy to use means once they have it, it has to be simple enough that they can learn it and actually really operate get use with out it, of it, right. operate it. Yeah. Um, and it additionally, it has to be useful. 
So that's another concept that so the terminology is simple, but it's actually different. Useful means it has to have some utility. It has to, uh, the thing that you're doing with it has to be um, something that you can do better that than with another process or technology and also something that you get some sort of use out of. It provides mm -hmm. value in some way. And then I also think it has to be fun, um, which, I, which may be like the most controversial of these points because... Uh, when you're thinking about like enterprise software, you don't think of someone having fun with it. But I, what I mean by that is it has to be engaging in some way. Mm -hmm. It has to make you want to use it. Um, right. And then it, the last point I have is people have to be able to share their work. So I think there's, there's a kind of innate thing that people do that um, when, they, when they're doing something that they feel is powerful, they want other people to recognize and, and, and share it with them. Mm -hmm. um, and in, if there's no avenue for that, I think people stop doing things if they can't share their experiences with others right or um, or just the word of mouth right the, yep. the whole idea of uh, adoption reaching beyond one person actually completely stops if the person doesn't share that information out uh is he restricted to or yep. in some ways uh ashamed to yeah, part of I mean, we talk sometimes about like the cycle of visual analysis, and and a part of that cycle is getting feedback from other people, um, mm. acting on findings. If that doesn't exist, then you just reach an ending point. Even if it is useful, you reach a stopping point fairly quickly. So that's an important element as well. So those are kind of the five points: easy to access, easy to use, fun, useful, and ability to share. Um, and I thought maybe a good way for us to start uh, this conversation about adoption. You know, we're going to think about it from a Tableau perspective, but just to kind of frame the conversation, I thought maybe we could think of some things in our lives that maybe our technologies or related to technology that um, that need to be adopted in some way or that are at some stage in that adoption cycle and how those reflect against kind of those, those points right. that we mentioned. Can you think of any examples there? You know, I think uh, a lot of our... our day-to-day -day activities on uh, the web, uh, how we shop, how we watch movies, how we do things mm -hmm. is a good example of that because that's really changed a whole lot in the course of 10 years. Um, so, you know, within 10 years, we've uh, kind of bridged a huge gap when it comes down to just the comfort level of being able to, you know, operate on online for all those terms. And part mm -hmm. of it was the technology change, part of it was just the, the, the shift, I think, in uh, mindsets for a lot of us. Uh, Amazon's a classic example of it. Yeah. But when we first started talking about uh, making payments online, making uh, purchasing things from uh, something that you don't physically see, that you never actually touch by hand, but mm -hmm. that uh, hopefully, of course, will show up at your door one day, that scared a lot of people. And I think it took a lot of um, – well, it took time and it took a lot of changes in order to really kind of see – that adoption kind of takes through. Yeah, there's a number of elements in that like traditional kind of shopping process. If you're speaking about like Amazon, that um, people had to sort of shift the way they thought about things. Right. You know, so like ease of access, like going into a store and buying something. There's a security and ease to that because you you see the thing and you're like, I'll give you money and you give me that thing and you give them money and then they give you the thing, right? <laughs> um, whereas on Amazon, uh, you see a picture of the thing mm -hmm. and you don't necessarily get to hold it or touch it in any way. And so there's, you kind of lose a little bit of that ease of access and ease of use kind of concept because 
you have some doubt about whether whether what you're doing is is actually leading to the result you want, right? right. Like I'm going to give some money and I, I don't even see the money changing hands. So I have to kind of trust in the system that the money has gone to the appropriate place. Mm -hmm. And then I also have to trust that they're going to take the money and actually send the thing to me. And I don't really know what's going on in that transaction. But, but think about it the other way in terms of how it's actually changed the equation for mm -hmm. some of those different items when we start to actually think about not just the fear around it, but specifically what it's actually done mm -hmm. uh, compared to the age old process of going to a brick and mortar shop that's there, right? Yeah. Um, you know, when we talk about sort of that uh, ease of access, uh, anybody who has internet access, whether it's now on their mobile phones, uh, uh, when they're sitting down at their desk, mm -hmm. um, there's almost not a time when we're connect not connected to the web. And the ability for us to actually be able to tap into Amazon across any of those platforms has really actually uh, propelled basically the usage of it. Um, I sit down, I think of something that, oh yeah, I need to get that for home. And I can uh, instantly kind of get, get use of that. Um, yeah. So there's access to more things. Like that's mm -hmm. one of the things is like, you don't have to go to 30 different shops, right? Mm -hmm. You can you, you can find one place to find everything. Um, it saves you time. It saves you effort. Um, theoretically, you, you get a better deal because there's many different vendors competing in one place for your, your dollar. So right. you, you can't say like, you know, I'm the only shop in town that has this, right? I can charge it whatever I want. And then there's the fact that it's, um, that it is, you know, easy to, to find and access just via right. the web. So, you know, those are some of the advantages. I mean, that's kind of why it's useful, right? If you're right. kind of going down this list is, you get value out of that service that you wouldn't get out of going, getting in your car and driving or walking right. to a store. I mean, even on, on that level, I mean, think about basically everything that kind of is built around that that shopping experience, whether it's the recommended recommended uh, sort of purchases mm -hmm. uh, with your product. So if you buy a trash can, it comes with you know, oh okay, you might want to also take a look at trash bags mm -hmm. with it. Uh, the remembering, of course, your previous searches mm -hmm. and so keeping track and record of that so that makes basically that usefulness that, that ability to actually uh the ease of use of operating it is incredibly right. easy i don't have to talk to anybody and in fact i can browse around take a look maybe come back later uh there is no limits or there's no uh shop hours i need to respect uh in order to get what i want yeah. So we know that it's easy to access. We know it's easy to use. We know it's useful. Mm -hmm. How is it fun? It's interesting when we start to kind of think about sort of those other elements in there, mm -hmm. right? I mean, fun, uh, it's really about engaging, uh, like you said earlier. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody, well, some folks shop compulsively because mm -hmm. it's fun, right? Uh, I, I think most folks, uh, especially if they're on Amazon, they're looking for one thing. In fact, it is useful uh, and that you can find yourself kind of going down a rabbit hole at times where you say, okay, you look at one thing. Oh, but there's all these other selections with yeah. it. And so you end up basically learning about, um, well, that's kind of where, products. that's kind of where I was going with it as well is it's engaging because you feel more powerful because you feel like you have more choice because mm -hmm. you can see all the different options. Right. So you feel like you're in charge of what's going on as opposed to the vendor. Um, you can explore, all the different options available to you. Um, and you can do that without a lot of effort. Um, so I, I do think that is, 
you know, I don't know if you define it as fun, but it is engaging and probably more so than, than for most people than going to a bunch of different stores, which has a lot of headache associated with it. And then the last thing is sharing, which I think is incredibly important to something like Amazon, because when's the last time you bought something with one star review? No. Never. No one no one does because they have one star reviews. So there's there's a value that the community gets in sharing their feedback and results from buying things in this platform that wouldn't exist in another avenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think on on that degree too, it's also been a, an incredibly successful platform of innovating and surprising um well, providing surprises that people are very uh well eager to share, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole idea of ordering Prime in the city now uh, and getting your purchase within two hours. Uh, the very fact of, oh, maybe one day we'll have drones deliver basically our products. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of sort of innovation there that is just ultimately exciting from a consumer standpoint that we're, we're very much uh, you know tapped into. So, okay, that's good. We kind of went through those five different steps with Amazon. And I think Amazon, in terms of how it relates to the culture, is something that's fairly late in the adoption cycle, right? right? Like most people are aware of it. Um, some people don't use it, but a lot of, I think probably a majority of people do. Right. And, um, and so it's kind of, it's been successfully adopted by society. Um, can we think of an example of something that's newer that maybe is earlier on in the adoption phase, and maybe we can think about where some of those um, some of those items are maybe up in the air or not met? Right. You know what comes to mind um, when we're talking about something a little bit earlier on that might not meet all those qualities. I think smartwatches really kind of fit into that category, right? We all know that they're out there, um, and you know. Price range-wise, they, they tend to actually be relatively accessible, depending on basically what you might yeah, be looking I mean, for. They're expensive, but they're not prohibitively expensive. Someone right. that wants to buy technology can afford a few hundred dollars. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so the access to them is actually pretty reg- uh, regularly um, easy. And of course, uh, the, the big push you know, since we first started seeing uh, smartwatches was ultimately just a the ease of use around it, right? Mm-hmm. Just being able to actually operate what you want to do on your wrist uh, when you want to do it. I, I would argue that I think, um, you know, uh, Apple's answer to it has been fairly successful. It looks pretty easy. That's uh, sort of Apple's strategy is the ease of use and also the fun, I think. that Those are kind of mm-hmm. the... It, if you were going to ask an Apple brand executive, like what are the kind of key words that they associate with their brand, I bet those would be two of them, right. two of the top five. Like, I, and I think the fun is sort of especially accentuated in beauty with Apple products. Like they they uh, they try to enhance and, and affect the way people think of their products by showing beauty both in the products and things that you can do, but also just the experience of using it. I remember the first time I got a Mac that had OS ten. I would just I sat there and like minimized and maximized a window over and over because like the genie effect of it coming out of the dock and it's so fluid like it's something you had never seen on an operating system before right so like they invested a lot in that effect which is not useful at all but it is it is fun right well I I would actually argue that um, the engaging part is somewhere um, maybe of course it's the form factor itself it Mm -hmm. might be a little bit lacking right I don't think uh, well part of the the whole pitch for a mobile device on your wrist is that you can spend less time actually with the one that's in your pocket 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess to a certain degree, you're really not going to be spending all day playing with something that's on your wrist. Um, yeah. So the, the engagement factor is a little questionable at times, right? I mean, how engaged are people actually going to be involved when, with this watch product that's there? Um, is it supposed to uh, meld directly into our day? so that we don't think about it any differently than a watch up until we some of those features really come up? Or is it something that is uh, ultimately gonna change our, our day-to-day yeah. work that's there? And, and my argument is that it's leaned towards probably the, the first rather than the latter. Um, and so there's some questions I think that they're up for grab with it. But uh, where I think some of the biggest challenges really kind of come in from is specifically just the usefulness. Uh, around basically uh, these tools right now. So this spans beyond Apple, right? Um, the, the question is, if I have the information on my phone, do I need it also on my wrist? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's debatable. And I, I think a lot of folks, their reluctance to really see value around it is specifically that, uh, you know, that, that conflict, right? Yeah, the usefulness, I think, is it's the biggest... Um most debatable point if we're looking at kind of these five points here with that technology right now. Um, And I think it banks a lot on whether people need to have more access to their phones, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're sitting down and you have your phone in your pocket, is there an advantage to being able to access that information in an easier way than reaching into your pocket? Either because it's rude to hold your phone when you're sitting at a table or because it's too big or too unwieldy or difficult in some way, or, or maybe the information needs to be faster, get to you faster, right? Mm-hmm. But those are kind of the useful points. And I'm not sure if that's met or not. I mean, I haven't felt a need to get a smartwatch. I might, maybe in the future I will. Um, I do know some people that have them and they like the fact that they're notified more frequently about things. Like they, they can be discreetly communicated with Mm-hmm. And that's something that they like. I don't know if it's something that they find useful. They might say it's right. useful, but it might be really just them expressing the enjoyment that they get from it as right. opposed to the it's, usefulness. It's a need and want type of situation, right? Mm-hmm. And I think usefulness a lot of times is measured in those needs. Mm-hmm. And it's it's questionable, I think, uh, you know, in terms of what the needs actually are. But mm-hmm. sometimes those other factors ultimately do trump. Uh, just a, a direct need that something might solve. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, we've talked about some of these overarching ideas around sort of uh, products that have been adopted successfully, other products that seem to be sort of um, still kind of within that adoption cycle, mm-hmm. um, still kind of uh, working out some of its own uh, ideas uh, with its rollout. Want to actually kind of turn the table back to us a little bit and, okay. and talk about um, our experiences a little bit with Tableau. Um, so for me, working in the commercial space, uh, a lot of it is about sort of the initial implementation uh, and really just making sure that the customer at least uh, will be able to get things started, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I know for, for you, you deal with a very specific set of accounts. Um, the, the enterprise business is a lot about nurturing, mm-hmm. basically, uh, some of those elements that you described, the needs, and the access, and things along those lines. And so I kind of want to, uh, well, what's your experience with basically the adoption of Tableau? 
Yeah. So I think, first of all, if you think about Tableau as a technology, we can also kind of chart it on that same spectrum and say, there are certain things that the company and the product have done that are kind of checked off from the beginning. You know, regardless of who I am or who you are, or what you do with a customer, there are certain things that are enabled from the get-go. Like it's easy to access. We as a company have invested, making it easy for you, someone to download our software from the internet. Uh, it's easy to use. We've invested in making it easy for someone to both use it and also get resources to them so they can learn. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I think the engaging and funness of it is readily uh, visible. When someone looks at it, they can see that it's beautiful and that um, it, it's engaging to, to, to operate. Um, the things that I think are our responsibility are the last two. Can we show that it's useful, right? And can we enable the customer to share uh, their results and decisions that they make from their data? Mm. Um, those are things that are part of, I think, any business's evaluation of technology. And they're also the things that are kind of the hardest to, in, to implement and, and right. do. I, I think the big thing that I typically do see is each of those those two items specifically, they're unique to every deployment or every use case mm -hmm. uh, that we're asked to actually review. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, thinking about basically those two and being so unique in each use case, I mean, can you, uh, I mean, you have stories to share around basically how it might be a little bit different each time we, we come through and what we do to really explore? Yeah. Um... Well, um, you know, I I work kind of with enterprise accounts here in New York, so I, I think adoption is a major part of what I'm thinking about with most of my customers. It's it's people that already have Tableau, and it's how to get them to take on more. Um, mm. And often we're thinking about that in terms of the cultural shift, the mindset shift about how their people think about data. Um and most of the time I'm dealing with financial services companies. So I'm thinking of a couple of different companies that I work with very frequently that I can kind of talk about. Um, they have different philosophies in how they work with data. So I'm thinking of one right now that um, is, again, a, a large uh, financial services company uh, based in New York. And they spend... Um, they spend a lot of time dealing with data in a lot of different ways, um, for, whether it's investment banking data or uh, personal financial services or uh, or other things. Um, this is a company that uh, that relies on its business people to um, to know to, to be tech savvy. Um, so they're they're people in in their company that they hire maybe to be bankers or or have kind of financial knowledge, but they also trust those people to to be kind of tech savvy and, and software oriented and learn new things and uh, be able to really be self sufficient in how they deal with data. Hmm. So it's an interesting environment, and we've we've spent a lot of time me and and the, and the account manager for this account have spent a lot of time thinking about how do we drive adoption here, um, and they've done things um, like. They, they've made the software easy to access for their employees. They've made it easy for them to get a copy of Tableau if they want. Um, they've, they've invested in training people and, and, and working both with us and with partners and with their own internal kind of training or organizations to make sure that the people that want to use Tableau to work with data can. Um, the, um, you know, the other thing that I kind of consider in these arguments is your, is your 
fighting the status quo. So, mm. like, what are the kind of entrenched attitudes that keep you from being successful in any of those areas? So, um, with this company, I think it is a the a, a sort of reliance on traditional and static reporting. Mm. So they're thinking about data in terms of cross tabs and they're thinking of static reports and maybe a, a banker wants a view of data. So a junior banker builds it for them and sends it to them. Mm. And it's in Excel or it's in a picture or, a, or something that isn't dynamic and needs to be rebuilt if someone wants a new cut of the data the next week. Um, so we've been, that's been a kind of the focus of our efforts is if we can change those attitudes, then we can show Tableau's usefulness more. If we can change the attitudes toward how data could be presented and maybe allow them to, to kind of re-envision the best way to distribute information throughout the company, then we can prove the utility and give people an avenue to share content. Right. Um, so some of the things we've done have been invest a lot of time with them in sort of, uh, you know, some people might call them like Tableau doctor sessions where an expert works with their people who are using Tableau and helps them from a technical perspective, but also tries to affect some of that cultural change. So says, you know, you're doing it this way. Here's how you do this, right? Here's how you'd write this calculation or solve this problem. But have you thought about trying it this way instead? You know, is there is there a visual way you can do this? Is there a more dynamic way you can do it? Isn't there an interactive way that you can empower your end users to look at the data? Um, that kind of that's kind of working the technology and software strengths into their use cases. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, that's, I mean, the, the benefit of that is that, you know, if we're successful, it allows their people to see um, more use cases and, 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 and more adoption around Tableau. But it's also a difficult sort of cultural shift. And, that, and that's really what we're going for is getting them to think differently. And right. that, that can be tough. You know, that, that's something that is, is consistently a challenge. Right. Um, I don't know. What about you? Do, you? do you have any examples? I know you're, you're thinking about it from a slightly different perspective. I did. But I, I did really like um, what you just said there about really adoption being much more of a customer-driven event, mm -hmm. um, where our main goal around this isn't necessarily where we, we talk about adoption i think a lot in uh almost as a synonym to, to sales uh in in reality i think it's much more of a process that our customers go through mm -hmm. and it's about changing that mindset about what's important within their business and what is not right mm -hmm. um so the the need to get that standardized report every day the the, the need for those absolute numbers to be displayed there um mm -hmm. is it is that what's essential or is it really much more about the information that you're actually getting and able to actually work forward with, right? Yeah. Uh, the ability to actually collaborate on the same set of data. I think the big things uh, that we find is uh, it's not a disagreed upon point, but the priority of it goes down uh, quite dramatically depending on who you might be talking to. Some folks simply say, if I can get my numbers, it's better than... Uh, uh, ideally, I would like it for, uh, to match with everybody else's, but mm -hmm. it's not a requirement simply because uh, they've accepted a certain bias against uh, technology from being able to do so. Yeah, I mean, I guess something that you just said that kind of sets off something in, that, that I was thinking about was the <clears throat> the belief in a company of kind of 
whether it's people are, are capable or proficient in working with technology. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's exactly where you're going with that or not. Sort of. Okay. Um, I mean, that's something that I notice varies from company to company is some companies believe that all of their people should be able to use whatever technology they want and they should be empowered to do so. And some, there's mistrust and, and fear that if they give access to certain technologies to certain people, they'll misuse it and it'll it'll hurt the business. Right. Yeah. The, the idea or the thing that we typically do here, um, whether it's on a demo or whether it's on a call, my users are not sophisticated enough mm-hmm. to understand this is one of those plights where... Uh, it's a common thing we hear people say, especially technology people. Right. But it, it ends up being a bane, right? It's, it's quite sad when we actually hear that message because inherently... At some point, we've actually classified uh, some users being, well, capable um, and some users really not being uh, able to kind of police themselves or being uh, really accessible to that mm-hmm. data, right? Because yeah. they're ultimately going to injure themselves uh, or the belief that is that they're going to ultimately injure themselves. Yeah. And then this company I, I had mentioned that's that's not so much of a concern. They want to give their employees access to technology. They trust them to be smart enough and they trust their hiring and they have a very high opinion of the people that they employ to the extent that they, you know, they want to give them technology in a safe way. They want to govern their access to certain things to make sure that, you know, security standards aren't, aren't uh, sacrificed. And obviously banks have requirements that don't just come from the business. They come from the government right. about that. But generally, there's there's a level of trust even right. for their business people, whereas other companies I've working with I've worked with, um, companies in the same inter- industry have vastly different philosophies. I mean, I'm thinking of another company now that um, they have a very strong belief that they're the business people aren't capable of working with data, and if they did, it would cause problems mm-hmm. uh, because they'd be so incapable that they'd make poor decisions or um, or they'd, they'd find things that they shouldn't see or that they'd make poor conclusions. So the child like safety lock of Yeah, it's really approach. interesting that that is, and that's, I think, a, another piece of the status quo, which is this split between the IT and business groups, mm-hmm. um, that again, I think it's a traditional belief that business people aren't smart enough to handle technology. Right. Um, and that's that's a real challenge that a lot of businesses face, right? Yeah, no, I, I think you. Um, one of the things that we'll have to kind of dive into it is those two very specific scenarios. A, where um, the philosophy of the the company is dr- dramatically different than ours. So, uh, mm-hmm. what do we do to bridge that gap? And of course, then the, there's the other company, right? The companies that are fairly well aligned with what we were thinking. But how do we make sure that their priorities are kind of aligned with ours? And I guess before we, we get too far along, it looks like our beers are getting a little dry. So let's take a break here. And okay. then we'll kind of come back and talk about some of the barriers to uh, adoption there. Okay. Stay tuned. Okay, new beer. New beer. We've switched to the Port Jeff Brewing Company. I liked how it was called Port Jeff. Um, where is it from? They're from Port Jefferson, New York. Hey, that's pretty close to here. 
I don't know where Port Jefferson is. Isn't Port Jefferson um, on the on the uh, Long Island Railroad? I think you're thinking of Port Washington, but okay, Port, Jefferson Port, Port Jefferson might also be Port Jefferson, New York. It is on Long Island, but I think I was thinking of Port Washington in terms of train stops. There, there's a lot um, of ports that are named port after president. presidents. Yeah. Port founder. There's probably a Port Monroe, a Port Wilson somewhere. <laughs> uh, port. I doubt it. No? Okay, it's pretty far out there, Port Jefferson. It's near Stony Brook. It's like probably two-thirds of the way out Long Island on mm. the northern shore. Near Smithtown. Ah. Uh, which is near where uh, Sally, uh, Sally Baldoff lives. Mm-mm. She lives on Spatone Bay. Um, that's probably a couple hour train ride from here. And it is on. Let's see what train line it's on. That's on the Port Jefferson train line. That's pretty good. There you go. So that's probably what I was thinking of. It's probably the train you take to Sally Baldoff's house. Okay. Um, beach beer. So I think the reason we wanted to buy this was because it's hot out. It's the summer and beach beer was just a good name. It's got a picture of a boat, a ship on the can. It's making kind of a funny noise. It's kind of an interesting can. Mm. I think that's your can, man. Do that to your, squeeze your can. That's not making that noise. Not, not that noise. Did I get a defective can? I'm pretty certain they just hate you, Charles. The beer doesn't taste defective. It tastes like beer. Mm. It's kind of a mild flavor. Uh... Lager, mild lager. Pretty tasty after, uh, I think, that a little bit more flavorful, intensive. It's definitely a beer that I could see myself drinking on the beach. Mm. And it it has a list of things that you should bring with you to the beach. One, surfboard. Two, sunblock. Three, beach chair. Four, towel. Five, sunglasses. Six, tunes. Tunes. Seven, flip-flops. And eight, beach beer. No frisbee though. Doesn't have a frisbee. No. I think you're surfing instead of throwing a frisbee. Best cans on the beach. Small batch. Big taste. <laughs> Port Chef Brewing Company. That there you go. That is uh, give us free stuff now. Um. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, we're we're ready for corporate sponsorship. We okay. Anyway, <laughs> getting back to it. Um, so we left the conversation off at. I think talking about sort of the two kind of breakdown of companies that we typically do see, and I know that we're we're bucketing at a certain point. Yep. But uh, there are the companies that are inherently um, open to technology, who are inviting, I think, of their um, employees to be really be enabled or empowered uh, with technology, and then others that are a little bit more afraid of it. Um, companies that are instinctively a little bit more concerned about uh, users misusing the technology or uh, making bad decisions off of it. And, you know, to that point, I guess, Charles, it sounds like you've had some experience working with both, um, both in terms of aligning priorities and even combating, I think, uh, Mm -hmm. conflicting uh, thought process. I guess what's the what's your thoughts around those two? Yeah, I think so. We're specifically talking about their IT and business relationship, right? There's companies that are trusting of their business people and how they relate to technology. Uh, whether or not they have faith in the business users' skills, I think they just, their philosophy is that they want to empower those people to use more technology. 
And then there's other companies that want to, I think, protect those people. So it's not that they think they're bad people or trying to inhibit their ability to do work. They're just afraid. There's fear around it and they're trying to protect mm -hmm. uh, themselves against the risks of giving people that maybe aren't experts in technology right. access to technology. Um, and I think those are actually the two buckets. If you look at businesses and how they relate to technology, I don't think there are other groups. I think there's there's those are two ends of maybe a spectrum. Maybe there's some people that fall a little bit in the middle, but I, I think it's almost a, a binary thing. It's whether or not they trust their business users to use technology or if mm -hmm. they uh, they want to prohibit or protect against it in some way. Right, and I, that's a really good way of framing it. It's not so much as there's people who are trying to push out technology um, and some folks who are, uh, you know, they instinctively hate vendors. For, mm -hmm. um, what we're really talking about is specifically those who are much more, who want to actually control the entire experience, really define it for other folks and really be able to ensure a, a level of success around it and then mm -hmm. others that are a little bit uh, more on the, the spectrum of believing that technology itself is good for for the business and that it's a much more of a democratic process or more yep. free process that's there. Um, so kind of speaking towards at least the experience that you had, Charles, with um, companies where the goals were simply or the priorities were simply misaligned. Um, are there any specifics that you kind of have with dealing with those types of companies or with those types of organizations? Yeah, so I think there's two different approaches, right? I think if we if we can delineate companies into those two different buckets, we can have a, an approach for either. I think they're probably different approaches depending on which company it is. Mm -hmm. So I'll talk a little bit about the companies that maybe are want to empower their business users. A company wanting to empower its business users does not mean that it has <clears throat> good or progressive or correct or uh, what we could, we would consider um, the right views about data. Um, in fact, the you know the first company I talked about when we were kind of talking about those examples um, <clears throat> is very trusting of their business people, puts a lot of faith in their people um, who are in the business part of the of the company to operate technology, um, but they still have attachments to traditional reporting. There's still a status quo of tabular static reports as the way to interpret data. Mm. So we did some things there to try and uh, provoke a, a little bit of a cultural shift. Um, so I think the, the biggest thing you can do when you're working with a business group, I think the difference between business and IT tends to be business people are thinking about the specific skills that they need to be able to do their job. Mm -hmm. So they're thinking about, um, I have certain questions I need to be able to answer during my day. Mm -hmm. um, I have certain decisions to make. I have certain people I, have report, to, I report to that are asking me to do things. How do I do those things efficiently? Mm -hmm. So if you were going to come to one of those business people with a solution or a technology or a process that helped them, you'd have to address those things specifically. Mm -hmm. And I think with IT, they're thinking more about potential. Mm -hmm. They're thinking about what is the realm of capabilities that we could do and you know what are some of the potential benefits we could get from it. But they're not thinking about specific use cases. Right. It, that's the general kind of interpretation I get from working with these groups. So when when we're working with one of those more business user driven companies, 
the biggest thing that I can say that we can do is understand their business problems, mm-hmm. understand the things that they do every day, uh, understand how those might relate to the things that, that we are trying to offer them. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we've done with this group is we work very specifically with a with an investment banking uh, part of this company where we have gotten a lot of information about what their people do with data. They sit down, they work with it, they get it from certain systems, they dump it into Excel, they work with it in certain ways, they pivot it and they manipulate it and they create reports that they use to maybe pitch potential IPO clients, um, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the activities that they do? What is the tactile work that someone that works in this division does in Excel to create one of these reports? Because then when we come to them with a piece of software, we can say, here's what you're doing now. Here's what you could do to make that better, mm-hmm. uh, whether it is a better end result or a re- end result that is arrived at faster. Mm-hmm. Um, there's value in either one. Um, and and that's that's how we've approached these people. And that's that's been... You know, when we've been able to spend time with them and understand those use cases, we've had some success. And in places where we haven't either dedicated enough time or had the access to the people that we need to, we, we haven't been successful. We haven't right. gotten as much adoption in those places. So I guess in that case, in that in that subset of businesses, that would be the biggest um, the biggest thing you can do is is understand exactly down to the letter what they're doing. Because then you can figure out places where you can plug in your process and have success. Right. So, I mean, on the on the flip side of that, um, the IT-driven businesses, the businesses mm-hmm. that um, maybe are are more focused around their technology teams. Do you have any experience with that? Yeah. Um, I you know the experience kind of reminds me of uh, the last service service engagement that I, I ended up doing before um, mm-hmm. leaving that team uh, for folks who well want to look into it it's pretty obvious in terms of which account that I'm talking about but um, you know this was an account that was a little bit much more reluctant in order to grow I think some of their tableau deployment um, not necessarily uh, not necessarily because they didn't want a larger infrastructure or a larger footprint it was just the fear and concerns around um, Tableau as a technology, what it can do, what it can't do. Um, and in that position, actually being embedded directly into the organization actually uh, allowed for me to do a number of things that helped kind of push that conversation along. Um, you know, one of the big things we were finding was traditional, true to any sort of traditional larger enterprise, um, you know, the IT team and the um, sales teams that was mm. trying to support. They weren't really talking to one another. They didn't understand mm. each other's plight, each other's pains. And so people were just making requests for reports that weren't getting delivered or wasn't getting delivered quick enough. Uh, and there was no real sort of a feedback loop between that that aspect. Um, so we encouraged them, we pushed them to really kind of adopt them into that process, right? Have some skin in the game and really kind of a, at least for the IT team, to actually try to approach a newer project that was beyond the scope of what they actually even were doing to begin with, right? What are what are some of the things you did that encouraged them to kind of bring that other group in? Sure. So, I mean, one of the big items that came up 
initially when we were sitting down and trying to figure out basically where this whole Tableau deployment was going was in speaking to areas where we really weren't supporting to begin with, right? Why weren't we supporting them? What mm-hmm. could we do? What are some of the pain points that were coming up? And what really became evident from sort of initial chat was we, they, they didn't know. And so the big encouragement or the big push, especially with having a consultant on site, is, hey, let's just bridge the gap a little bit. Let's sit down together and figure out what's going on hmm. uh, and whether or not we can actually collaborate on something. And that's what ended up happening. We, we developed something, and with a little bit of guidance, we could figure out basically um, areas that were actually not being met. Um, in this case, it was just really asset tracking for their customers. And with that, we were able to actually turn out something that involved having basically the business users in the same room developing with us guiding us if we were a little off base if our numbers were off uh, things uh, helping us do user acceptance testing things along those lines uh, as well as having basically IT really show that commitment to really drive that performance that's there at the end it ended up being highly successful uh, because we opened up a new channel we, we, we actually changed sort of that idea of what Tableau or what that IT organization was really doing for the scope that it was basically in charge of for the organization. So I think you've described something that is worth mentioning. And um, the terminology is sort of, I don't know if it's controversial, but it's a little strange, is I think you've described our drive methodology, mm-hmm. uh, which is the brand that we kind of we kind of mention when we, when we talk about engaging with customers. And, um, you know, I think it's something that we as a company have actually been doing for a long time, but we've kind of just put definitions around it, which is basically the theory is we just need to get IT and the business talking to each other. Right. That's the theory. I mean, people, there's been a lot of documentation that we've put online and a lot of PowerPoint presentations around <laughs> like what that means. But at the end of the day, really what it is, is getting those two groups communicating mm-hmm. will, one, establish trust. So it'll break down that mistrust between the two different groups mm-hmm. and it will allow the two different groups to properly allocate skills, right. give the, uh, the things that require intense technical skills to the technologists and give the things that require business decision-making to the business people. And it also allows you to identify using a technology where those skills need to be broken out. Right. So, um, you know, I think it's, I don't know if it's a touchy subject, but it's kind of a difficult thing for us to talk to customers about. But that's that's the methodology. You know, I think right. when when we come into customers um, as salespeople talking about how they're going to engage with Tableau, um, sometimes putting a brand around it or a, or a title on it actually confuses things. But that's what we're trying to do right. is it's, get those groups talking. It's really not that much. It's not rocket science mm-hmm. when it comes down to it. What we're trying to do is, uh, well, what BI is supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. It's supposed to draw collaboration across the board. Um, and you know, this is where you actually do apply different tactics. The tactic that was applied here happened to be that, hey, post service uh, had allocated a, a, a set amount of hours. So regardless, we were going to be using up that information or mm-hmm. that time that's there and that, that budget. 
Um, and so you might as well actually make use out of it, right? And, and a big part of it, I think, is ultimately identifying what type of customer you're ultimately talking to, whether it is a customer where simply that the priorities might not be aligned. We need to understand their use case better, and they need to also understand how we fit in to different use cases. Hmm. Uh, and in other situations, it's a lot more about kind of opening up a, new, a brand new avenue and finding sort of those excuses, really, um, to try to at least collaborate a little bit more or, or force that collaboration uh, down that's there. Um, so, okay. Mm-hmm. So I think we talked about, I think those are good kind of governing strategies right. for those two different groups. Um, to summarize really briefly, when it's a group that's a little bit more business-led, yeah. uh, we're looking to really understand the use cases first and foremost mm-hmm. and apply our technology to those use cases. When it's a more IT group, we're trying to kind of facilitate communication between the IT and business groups to allocate resources the best. Right. Um, and those factors are obviously going to vary and, and depend a little bit on the specific nuance of the the company or the organization that's that's using Tableau, but they are both strategies that will lead to adoption uh, because of the focus that we kind of pay uh, to those different uh, right. those different groups and the different dynamics they're in. Um, the uh, it, maybe we could kind of expand that and say, mm-hmm. you know, if we're thinking about adoption and we're thinking about um, the things that we can do to affect adoption. What are the things that we can do? Those are kind of some of the things we've already talked about. And then what, what can't we do? What are, what are things that are sort of outside our control or outside of our responsibility? Right. You know, I think one of the big things that we oftentimes are, have a misunderstanding around is specifically that adoption isn't a sales uh, process. It's a customer process, right? Mm-hmm. It's about kind of getting shifting that mindset and it's really internally driven as opposed yeah. to something that can be influenced by the outside but you're not, never going to be told one thing and and led down that route that's there um and i think that's one thing that's very important about adoption right we have to realize that they have to come willingly um otherwise uh, the adoption will fail right we're, we're either promising too much uh or you know uh at some point somebody's being misled somewhere mm-hmm. Um, so what can we do? What can't we do? I think that the big distinction around that, it has to kind of come down to uh, that breakdown, right? What we can do is really always constantly kind of challenge some of the mindset that comes up, right? Yep. So Tableau today, we're using it for quota dashboards and things like that, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't use it for other areas, right? Should we be using it to track bugs and things like that? And just to be clear, I'm well aware that we actually use it for all those cases. But speaking in those terms, right, we, we keep thinking about, um, you know, simply just the initial use case. Uh, we need to kind of break that mold every single time. And it mm-hmm. might be a little bit taxing sometimes with the people that we work with. But uh, it's, the, it's the thought process of how do we introduce technology to these new and other areas. Um, and I think that's really sort of that challenge that we have to be very comfortable with coming back and back to. Okay. So I think the... This may seem obvious, but the other thing we can do is we can answer our customers' questions, mm-hmm. right? We can take their, you know, you, the thing you were suggesting was we can challenge their assumptions. Right. We can say, you're thinking about it this way. 
uh, we can try to affect shift in how they think about things. We can try to reframe their expectations. And that's a really important thing. When, when we have a, a technology like Tableau that is similar but different from technologies that have existed in the past, right? then we have to do that. We have to reframe expectations. But the other thing that is our responsibility and that we can do is we have the responsibility to answer questions honestly and correctly. So customers have use cases and they have questions and we have to be able to answer those expertly in a way that reflects certainly our philosophy, but also reflects the realities of our technology. I'm going to expand your definition a little bit. I, I think really it's the, the ability that, that we can really understand what our customers are going through, right? And, and this goes beyond just Tableau. Like what you mm -hmm. said earlier about really bridging a gap for those companies that are just slightly misaligned. We got to understand yeah. what they're doing, right? And so it's not just about, hey, are you looking for technology? It's this project's coming up, right? Have yeah. you considered some of the technology implications that are a factor to this yeah. have you um what would you do in that situation um i know we're always governed to, to sell more but really of course for us to be thinking critically in, the, in their shoes uh ends up being something that we we desperately need to do yeah we're in the unique position i think to um as as maybe pre-sales people or technical consultants to provide empathy you know to provide an understanding of the client's, excuse me, um, pain points and real use cases, but with the perspective of someone who, you know, has the expertise to know how we would recommend to do something as well. Right. Um, okay. So those are the things that we can do. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, there, there are probably other things, but I think those are kind of good generalizations about what our capabilities are when helping a customer make an adoption of our software, right? right? What can't we do? I think what we can't do is do one without the other. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier. I think mm -hmm. you kind of had a really good point around this where um, you can't just simply challenge, challenge, challenge without answering their questions, right? Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we're not a fit. Sometimes we can't answer their questions and therefore we really don't have a right to start challenging just everything that, that comes up. Um, now, on the other hand, I think that we have to really kind of think the other way as well, right? Um, it's uh, we can't also kind of just challenge, or excuse me, uh, not challenge their mindset and just mm -hmm. answer their questions. Yes, uh, that's sort of customer care, um, you know, freakishly friendly. But mm -hmm. at the same point, it's also very um, uh unempathetic of us not to actually advocate yeah. when technology can actually be helpful in a situation where all we do is just enable with what they currently have, what they're currently trying to do. It, it, it becomes uninnovative and, you know, unvisionary, I think for us. Yeah. I think, um, I think kind of where we are as a company is, we've kind of slowly moved from one end of that to the other as a company. So I think traditionally, historically, we were a very challenging company. Mm -hmm. We part, partly because we weren't as feature rich as we are now. So we would, we would challenge because of weakness, but we, our tendency was to say, we know how to do this. We have really smart people. We know how to do this better than you. So you should listen to us mm -hmm. and you shouldn't do it that way. You should do it this way. Right. Um, I think that's sort of, the majority of Tableau's history in terms of time, that's been our philosophy. And I think as the software has evolved, 
we have gotten to the point where we can answer most questions with the software. So we may be moving a little bit farther toward the merely answering questions side of the spectrum where we actually probably do have a, an answer or a workaround for most questions that someone would ask. Right. And that that's a risk because we can actually shy away from best practices uh, because we fear that not answering the question will drive customers away. Right. Um, so I think, you know, in the past, we probably had to check ourselves in the, you know, we can't be too challenging. We can't make it sound like we don't care about our customers' concerns. And now we have to start thinking about things. And I don't, I don't know if we're too far over yet, but I think we, we need to start worrying or at least guarding ourselves against um, only answering questions and not being thought leaders. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, you know, the, the question came up this week uh, when we were having an internal discussion. Are we innovating faster than what our customers actually grow with, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we think about basically a leap from 8.0 uh, to 9.0, just mm -hmm. from service scalability standpoint, it's mm -hmm. version nine is fast; it can scale. Um, and of course, the question is: Is it too fa uh, too scalable now that people won't go from eight core to sixteen core and so forth? It's a real concern. <laughs> but I think a part of that is that we we have to kind of face the the challenges of that. Of course, if we if we don't do that, we're going to fall behind very quickly from technology standpoint. But if we if we are going to be taking that step to, uh, from a technology standpoint. Gotta be ready to actually start tackling uh, innovation from a different perspective, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not enough to, for us to think that a deployment, a, a company needs one deployment and that's it. Uh, even at Tableau, our mm -hmm. internal deployments span what? We have at least three deployments, four, five? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so we have to start thinking in those terms. Even as a 2,500 person company, uh, we are thinking in those terms where the needs will start to outweigh and we have to understand the process a little bit better and make sure that customers are using the tool in the best way possible, right? As opposed to trying to cut corners just because they haven't actually explored everything out there. Yeah. Um, I agree. I, I think there's, there's some real challenges that come up with that. And a big piece of that, around that is really what we can do, what we can't do. Um, and, and really making sure we understand what side of the conversation uh, we stay with and where we're going to actually push a little bit more uh, and, of course, where we really can't make decisions for others. Okay. That being said, though, I guess we'll move on a little bit to um, a final thing that I've been kind of thinking of, and, and that's really sort of all the other challenges that come up, right? So we talked about what we can do, what we can't do. Uh, we have to start thinking about sort of this idea of what is it that also end up being resistance. And of course, this is something that I think, um, well, uh, anybody who's been on the sales side will probably understand a little bit more. Um, but what are the things that you do typically see that kind of stand in the way of really preventing adoption from actually occurring? Um, that's a good question. So the things that stand in the way of adoption occurring, I mean, I think, you know, the status quo things that we've mentioned in general are, are the biggest mm -hmm. kind of is the biggest category. Um, a traditional understanding in a business that technology works a certain way or data works a certain way. And, uh, you know, people that have built their careers on that assumption. 
you know, people don't, you know, necessarily respond to change that well in that way, saying, you know, the philosophy that you've had that's made you successful for 30 years need, now needs to be changed because technology has changed. Right. Um, so that's that status quo is a, is a big one. Right. I think there are political challenges that come up with that. That's another category, but it is also kind of in the status quo category saying, you know, there are people that have held beliefs in a business that something should work a certain way and their influence is often uh, it, it big enough to um, to keep adoption from happening. Right. Um, anything else that you can think of? You know, I, I think it's it's really in those terms, right? People who are very much shaped by their own bias. Um, so static reports is what I've been getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been able to build a career with it. Yeah. Why? Why should I change? I was it? talking to a customer yesterday that was just they they couldn't wrap their minds around the usefulness of uh, visualization as an analytic tool. They understood that pictures may be easier to understand, mm-hmm. but they didn't understand the concept of you know it's a part of a process, right? right? A, a, a picture can start a conversation and make the uh, the end result, which may be text, mm-hmm. uh, more meaningful or faster or easier to access. Um, so that's just a that's a status quo belief and a comfort level belief that you know they're they're not going to get the usefulness out of a different approach that they would out of out of the way they've been doing things. Right. I, I think the other aspects are kind of the things that we touched on as well. Right. Sometimes it is a barrier to entry. Uh, I've heard. <laughs> I remember being at a trade show and uh, this journalist said, oh, I really like Tableau, using Tableau Public, but you guys make uh, your commercial version just so expensive. Hmm. And so part of it, of course, is uh, ease of access. Well, we're, we're slowly changing that, right? With a Tableau Online uh, move is m- massively reducing basically the infrastructure that's needed to really deploy hmm. and make use of that those functionality. Uh, but of course, even internally, right? Um, I was talking to a yeah. friend uh, at one of the uh, big four firms, um, and he was kind of uh, talking to. He gets reports from Tableau, or he gets reports that are generated from Tableau that are PNGs and PDFs, and mm-hmm. um, there's always a queue and there's always a request for it. And he was always surprised. It's like, hey, how how much is actually access? Oh. Yeah. Um, and so I told him the, the list pricing and he was actually really surprised, uh, mainly because this group, uh, of over five people that they would go to, mm-hmm. uh, there was only le- one license and they had to just kind of, um, only one person could ever generate this information that's there. And so sometimes of course, like you mentioned, those political barriers, that budgetary barriers, mm-hmm. um, if we're not discovering those out, I think sometimes they, they get lost in the fray and these people are definitely suffering. Yeah, that ease of access conversation is something that is easy to overlook in the age of like consumerized technology, but it's actually extremely important, uh, extremely relevant in the way people adopt software and technology in general. Um, the The conversation I had with uh, w- with a, another Tableau employee, Scott Taylor, recently was about how that ease of access might change over the next few years, right? So as the technology evolves, how's that evolves, excuse me, how is that going to affect the way we provide access to it? Um, as we maybe make the capabilities of Tableau more accessible in a 
zero footprint environment. Um, we were wondering if maybe the Tableau desktop capabilities in their entirety might ever just be free because mm. we, we know that that's going to increasingly be a small percentage of a company, the people that actually use Tableau desktop because so many capabilities will be pushed to the web. It's, um, it, it's funny because MicroStrategy kind of went down that route. Um, obviously, there is a connotation of freeware and of course... Uh, and we don't know if right. that's true or that'll happen or not, but it's interesting to think about if that, that might be a way that we provide access um, in a way that we can't really imagine right now because mm -hmm. that's not how the software model works, but oh, yeah. it, could, it could change that way. Yeah, and of course, you know, uh, as we evolve, right, uh, that, that access level involves everything from how we run our business, from licensing out to uh, just the technology itself. Uh, even, of course, for us, talking about basically these ideas of adoption, uh, how to get started, how, what trainings are available. Uh, we have to keep thinking about these things so that we continue to push the best experience for our end users to kind of go through, you know, really, of course, these five items. Um, when they're going through them, uh, they really find an experience that is unlike any other piece of software that's out there in the world. Yeah. We're also walking sort of an interesting line as a company because I think most, most companies kind of define themselves as either enterprise software or consumer software. And we're kind of both, you know, in some ways, like we, we have products that address both markets. And I think we have vision of both companies and individuals using Tableau and finding value from it. But there's vastly different assumptions and models for how those different types of software are licensed and sold. Right. So, I don't know if there's, you know, I don't know if there's a single answer to, to how that's managed, but it'll it'll affect how we grow as a company and how people adopt Tableau going forward. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, just to kind of recap through some of these mm -hmm. different concepts here. I mean, we talked about basically adoption really being a factor of sort of the ease of access, ease of use, uh, the usefulness of it, mm -hmm. the ability to really share it and really have fun with it, um, yeah. and and our role. In really kind of enabling all five of those different factors, uh, the idea of really where we stand uh, in the conversation of, of adoption, right? Really making mm -hmm. sure that we are guides to the adopt uh, to that adoption, as opposed to those who are just pushing on the adoption and, and forcefully uh, leading people down that that path that they're not really ready or willing to go down. Mm -hmm. um, really challenging. And, and getting folks to kind of think beyond that scope of what they're currently doing, as well as, of course, currently supporting them, really making sure that we enable sort of that freakishly friendly attitude um, that we portray it so that they can turn around and really kind of uh, take example of it when they're actually serving their, their own customers that's there. There's a lot I think we, we can kind of continue to talk about uh, about the technologies that we've seen where adoption's been challenging and successful at times, but at least these have been at least our observations for it. Yeah. So um, I'm pretty happy with that. I mean, I think that's, that's how we think about it. And that's, I think it's a pretty, um, a pretty simple, but also um, pretty effective way of, of kind of thinking about how people adopt new technologies and how Tableau is, is in, implicated in that cycle. 
Um, so we have our nice list of, of different kind of elements in the adoption cycle. I want to end with another list, Wilson. Maybe cool. we can generate this on the fly. Okay. So the list that I want to end with is we've been getting some questions about our podcast, right, mm -hmm. uh, from people. And I think, you know, word has gotten out that we're doing this. And, um, and I wanted to just provide to, to people that are listening a list of prerequisites that you must meet to be a guest host mm. on our podcast with us because we've, we've had some requests to be a guest host. So I think the first um, the first requirement is you have to be willing to travel to New York. Mm. So we're, we, we like recording this in person, in studio together. We have microphones. We sit around a table. We record it. We like doing that. So anyone uh, is welcome to, to join us and be a guest host, but you have to come travel and, and do that do that with us and sit, sit around a, a kitchen table. Right. With me and Wilson, what what is another prerequisite? Let's build. Let's, maybe there's there's three or four uh, prerequisites to this. Uh, uh, bring a drink, or at least bring some ideas. You have to bring drink. a cocktail or drink idea. Right. Absolutely. I think I was glad you said that. I wanted to make sure that was in there. You just have to you have to contribute some thought leadership around drinking. Uh, right. Basically, is is what I'm saying. So it can be a type of beer. It can be a type of cocktail. It can be a nice bottle of wine. It could be uh, it could be moonshine that you made yourself in your bathtub. Like we're not picky, but mm. we need you to contribute in that way. What else? Um, let me think. Thinking. Uh, You're right. That's it. That's that, it. That's, that's, about that's it. it. That's everything. You have to come to New York with liquor. And you can join us. You too could be sitting around my kitchen table with a microphone and a MacBook Pro recording your overindulgent thoughts about Tableau. I think I know somebody uh, that sits in an outside bench um, that lives on an outside bench. I kind of fit all this. Hey, quality. he'd be welcome here. We've got a couch to sleep on. Uh, right. Maybe not for a long period of time, but uh, you know, a night or two if that's if that's if that's what he wants to do. He's a good guy. He's got some uh, interesting theories about the government. Okay, he's. <laughs> I'm also not sure about his personal health and, and hygiene, but we'll we'll deal with that at another time. Anyway, um, if you want to join us here for a recording, feel free to let us know. Uh, we'll be having many more conversations about this. Thanks for listening. 